I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, I've got a good show planned. Uh, I've got a couple of things that I need to talk about. Things we uh, a little bit, a few things I've talked about uh, recently, including including the uh, the opening weekend for uh, for Killers of the Flower Moon, um, the film based on the book by David Grant. Uh, apparently, I'm not the only voice that has voiced some concern, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that uh, later. I'm going to take your calls as well, um, and we are going to um, uh, visit a few a few other issues as well. Um, look, the the Killers of the Flower Moon uh, uh, film, the book and the film, basically recount um, the murders that took place in. Uh, the Osage territories of Oklahoma in the 1920s. And it is basically a, a story of, of theft and murder, uh, premeditation, the likes of which there may be no other crime in American history that can, can match it. The idea that, that it's such a massive conspiracy of people from, uh, you know, from all of the, uh, the sectors, the, the, the police, the the doctors, the the funeral home directors, the uh, the, the the general storekeep. I mean, all of the lawyers. All, I mean, all the people who were involved in the conspiracy, and and the conspiracy involved trying to ease into uh, the Osage families to take their wealth that uh, they had recently come into because of oil being discovered on their lands. And and I'm going to discuss that. Um, a little bit more this week. I know uh, I asked Reggie to grab a clip. Uh, the the film premieres basically, uh, you know, across the United States uh, tomorrow uh, on the twentieth, I believe. But it's it's had a couple of preview premieres, and uh, in Los Angeles they did one. And although the actors um, are not participating in these these premieres because of uh, the the actor strike. Other uh, people, consultants and others, have uh, you know have been participating in these things, and we heard an interesting comment from uh, Christopher Cote, I think is his name, who was one of the Osage consultants hired on the film, and he expressed some of the same kinds of concerns that that I've expressed on this show, and even when I joined Michael G. Haskins uh, on Living for the City. So, uh, Reggie, do you have that clip uh, queued up by chance? I most certainly do. Well, let's let's hear. This is you know uh, again Christopher Cote coming directly out of the the screen or the screening of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. He was a consultant, I think, on language primarily, uh, but he's Osage and and just just listen to his thoughts on it, if you would. I was nervous about the release of the film. Now that I've seen it, uh, I have some strong opinions. As as an Osage, I really wanted this to be from the perspective of Molly and what her family experienced. But I think it would take an Osage to do that. Um, Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great job representing our people. But this story is being told, this history is being told almost from the perspective of um, Ernest Burkhart. And they kind of give him this conscience and they kind of depict that there's love but when somebody conspires to murder your entire family, uh, that's not love. 
that's not love. That's that's just beyond that's just beyond abuse. And um, I think in the end, the question that you can be left with is how long will you be complacent with racism? How long will you go along with something and not say something, not speak up? How long will you be complacent? And I think that's because this film was not made for an Osage audience. It was made for everybody not Osage. Uh, for those that have been disenfranchised, they can relate. But for other countries, you know, that have their acts and their histories of oppression, um, this is an opportunity for them to ask themselves this question of morality. And so that's that's how I feel. That's my, that's how I feel about this film. All right. Yeah. So, and, and I got to share my, uh, my, my exact sentiment, uh, with Christopher here. Um, I, I will say that I don't think that only an Osage could have told the story. I think, I think you need to have the Osage be a part of the storytelling. And, but there was a choice made, there was a choice made here to try to humanize one of the murderers, one of the, you know, the culprits of, you know, this massive crime that, that involved a lot more people than Ernest Burkhart and his uncle, uh, you know, Bill Hale. Um, and it involved more people than just Molly Burkhart as well. And I'm, and you know, I, I offered my concerns, um, without having seen the film, just based on what I was seeing in the trailers. And of course I read the book. I had David Grant on my show, you know, back, you know, I don't know, six years ago or so. And we, you know, so I understood basically the story or the investigative journalism part of it that, that David Grant had done. But when a film is created and when a film is adapted from a book, especially a, a true story, and and, and look, I, I have to say right now, uh, David Grant is a white guy too. So even Killers of the Flower Moon as a piece of investigative journalism was done not from a Native perspective. His book basically follows the investigation by the FBI, for better or worse. And, and David does a great job, you know, calling out the shortcomings of that investigation and of the FBI agent who was, who was doing it and, and how much he ignored uh, or decided not to pursue other murderers and, you know, other culprits in the whole thing. He wanted a conviction, so he narrowed his focus to, to get a conviction, and that's, what, and that's what drove him. But the film does take on the perspective of, of basing the whole story around one of the murderers. And, and, the, and again, the problem with, with a film that, that tries to, t you know, again, uh, uh, tell a story like, uh, like this is you have to understand that none of the dialogue is real. It's all made up. I mean, these are script writers. They, they wrote the film. They wrote the, the movie. So it isn't necessarily real dialogue. And, and in fact, it, not necessarily. It, it's not real dialogue. I mean, they may have found a couple of quotes here and there um, that survived over the years. But, but even those are, there's no context to them. So if, if you have somebody saying that I'm, the, I'm a friend to the Osage, I don't think you can do this character development and try to cast that person necessarily as a friend of the Osage. I mean, that, that may have been an offhand or even a sarcastic comment for all we know. But the idea that they gave this Ernest Burkhart, white guy um, involved in, in, in the murders of an entire family, marries uh, Molly, uh, who would be, become Molly Burkhart, marries her uh, with the 
has children with her with the des with designs on on taking her money and and ultimately killing her as well. The idea of giving him a conscience, just just as a part of character development, yeah, it's it's great storytelling, but it's that's fantasy. That's not true. I mean, none of the dialogue, none of the character development is based on truth. There are certain things in the film, and I do encourage people to see the film. It opens it opens on the twentieth. Um, and I'm hoping that this film, just like with this conversation, will spur other conversation. You know, and, and I gotta I gotta add a commentary to uh, you know again to what this consultant said. You know, the question is how long does racism you know persist? I mean, this is 19, this is the 1920s. You have to understand, the Osage had already you know, had their children ripped away for many of these residential schools. Now that they were affluent, I don't know how much that impacted that, uh, you know, that occurrence. But certainly in the 1920s, there were thousands and thousands of children being ripped away to residential schools. The power of assimilation that would also come with affluence is, uh, is pretty dramatic. And, and of course, even though... You know, there was prohibition going on. There was plenty of alcohol that made it out that way. All the things that could destroy a people, including the affluence, what is what the Osage had faced. And, of course, greed and, and criminality, the, the likes of which the country may have never seen. And again, keeping in mind that Osage is literally down the road. I mean, Osage territory almost goes right up to Tulsa, where the Tulsa massacre takes place in the, within the same time frame. So the racism that was abound in, in Oklahoma, which was literally supposed to be a place that was set aside for, for Native territories. They, they, they dumped Native people from all over the country into Oklahoma. But then, they, then others started settling there. You had, you had thriving black communities that were uh, established in Oklahoma. So obviously there was some uh, relationship between some of these, these black leaders who would start some of these, uh, these communities. Uh, and of course, when oil and, and, and other means for, uh, for gaining wealth, and of course, all of the criminality that comes with looking for wealth, uh, you know, spread across the United States, all of a sudden, Oklahoma became inundated with, with, uh, with non-Native people, uh, white people. So, I mean, it's, but the question ends up being is how long does this persist? And I got to tell you, I, I, one of the subjects I talk about here all the time is is the, the battle that the Seneca Nation is still engaged with, with, with New York State, over gaming. But when you ask, well, yeah, they sure did get fleeced back there. They sure did take money away from those Osage. It's still happening today. The Senecas have been taken for over $2 billion by the state of New York. And today, even as the, the, the Seneca Nation is mired in, in a debate with, uh, with New York State over what the new gaming compact is going to look like, where the state is trying to insist on still collecting revenue sharing, which is not sharing if you're if you're forcing it, but that's what the state's insisting on. All of a sudden, the, a new coalition—I <laughs> like that—a coalition of wealthy white men has uh, has formed, and they, they call themselves. Uh, let me let me get this right: the Fair Compact for All Coalition. And let's be clear; they mean the Fair Compact for All of Them Coalition, and this involves. The non-native, the, the state licensed casino owners, the, the state licensed racino owners, uh, the the unions that uh, that are you know that, that work in these in these facilities, and of course the owners of uh, of of this gaming, including Delaware North, who 
is the company that uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor of the state of New York, her husband was uh, was a principal in this and has apparently left that job, but who knows what kind of financial um, connections he still maintains with Delaware North. But they have formed this coalition so they could demand a voice in the compact negotiations, which they don't have a place in that conversation. But it just gives you another example of how the arrogance of these wealthy white folks when they look at native territories and, and when they look at Seneca Gaming, they're not just trying to get money out of Seneca Gaming. They're also trying to create a situation where the Senecas do not have any advantage over them. Now, so when they talk about level playing field, we aren't talking about, okay, let's clean the slate here. Let's, let's, let's clear this up. We, we, we want to level the playing field. They're not saying, so we're going to give you back all the land that we defrauded out of you. And we're going to give you back all the money that we've taken from you. And we'll, we'll, start, uh, we'll start with a clean slate. No, that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> not, not at all. What they're talking about is trying to make sure that any of the regulatory advantages that we have, including the fact that, that we don't pay taxes to the state, they're saying, no, you don't pay taxes to the state, but you know what? We are going to force this revenue sharing on you so you cannot operate with a, with a lower operating margin than, than we do. I mean, this is... I mean, I mean, it's classic, you know, col colonialism that that is still invading our territories. So when we look at the at the billions that was taken out of Osage territory in oil, in, in and that is just in the unfair deals that they had with oil companies. And then you put on top of that the hundreds of Osage who were murdered for their money. It'd be nice to think that 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 kind of greed and that kind of theft and that kind of you know oppression is gone, but it's not. We see it every day. We see it in mineral extraction. We see it in, in um, look, our territories being regarded as sacrifice zones. These, these are, are the exact kind of problems that, that we are resisting. And, and, and that's what we're fighting back on. So it'd be nice as everybody looks at this, this film in, uh, you know, starting this weekend. And I think the film is going to do very well. And I do encourage people to see it. In spite of the fact that they're going to romanticize the murderers, I think the rest of the story is probably going to be told. And, and there's good Osage representation in there, there's good language representation. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Scorsese has produced a, a, a top-notch film. It just may not be completely true. And one of the consultants on the film has weighed in, uh, in, uh, in Mr. Cote, to, uh, to, to share some of my concerns. I mean, it isn't, the story isn't being told in film from a Native perspective. It's being told, and it's not even being told from an investigative perspective, from the, from the FBI agent. That's who um, DiCaprio was originally going to play. He was going to play the FBI agent, which I think he could have done and, and, and enhanced some character development there as well, I guess. But he chose to play, essentially, this tortured villain. And, you know, and, and I hope when the vast majority of people who go watch this film, I hope they don't walk away feeling sorry for, for, for the murderers in this, uh, in this film. I just hope that's not what we get out of this. I hope that they understand the role that racism and a level of premeditation the, like, the, the likes of which the world has never seen. The idea that you would seduce a woman, have children with a woman, and then wipe out her entire family just for greed? I mean, that's an, that is an incredible level of premeditation. But I hope people do, do see the film and they understand that part of it. I hope they understand 
the crime. And forget about, you know, the way the film is going to make it, you know, a passionate crime or a crime of passion, a love story. Forget all that. You know, I, I enjoy the film while you watch it and be entertained, but be informed. And you know, as I said, by all means, if you're interested in this thing, make sure you read the book. Don't just rely on the movie as your sole source of historical um, knowledge, because it's it's not it's not a documentary. It's it's it, it's a film. It's and it, and it's meant to be entertained, entertaining. It it's a, rec a recreation of um, that may not be accurate at all. You know, I've said it before. I think the Ernest Burkhart character that that Leonardo DiCaprio plays didn't have to be portrayed as a tortured you know, individual conflicted over his love for his wife and his desire to kill her. No, he could have been just portrayed as a complete deviant, you know, a, a psychopath. And they didn't need to try to humanize that. And it would have been every, every bit as accurate if they had done it that way, as this film is, you know, with, with the choices that Scorsese and DiCaprio and others have made. But, but again... Don't for a minute, don't for a minute think that the greed and the control that those Osage had to experience. Uh, yeah, they're not murdering Senecas over gaming revenue, but they're certainly hurting lives. I mean, Kathy Hochul literally froze the assets, froze the, the bank accounts of the Seneca Nation to extort half a billion dollars worth of payments out of it. And I got to tell you, over $2.2 billion of Seneca gaming wealth has gone to the state. And, and that did two things. It kept the Senecas from having any competitive advantage against the non-native gaming facilities because they were paying money just like they were, uh, to the state just like they were. Normally, that's one of our advantages. That's why we, we sell gas and, and, and cigarettes and, uh, and even cannabis products because we're not beholding to the state. The state doesn't have regulatory controls over us. And even with the insistence in the federal statute that there be a gaming compact with the state of New York, the, the underlying federal statute does not include the states getting paid. That has to be negotiated separately. And the idea of a, of a revenue sharing agreement must come with the state offering something of value, which they haven't done. And so here we sit. Now we've got the, the wealthy businessmen of Western New York all lining up so they can try to have their say, which they have no, and they're, they're entitled to none in this compact negotiation. But it's just another example of, of the greed and the reach and the control that non-native people have tried to, you know, assert over, over native people. Even when we find something, whether it's oil under the ground or, or, or whether we have the, the right to develop gaming, there's there's so many people trying to grab a piece of it, so I I, you know, I I I just can't talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, and the theft and those murders, without really asserting today how much some of this the same kind of behavior persists. And and look, just like all those white folks around Osage County and and the ones involved in, in the murders of the Osage, these are all fine upstanding business people. Uh, and other than fleecing the, uh, the, the Osage for their, their wealth, may have represented, they went to church, 
you know, they, you know, they provided services at a greatly increased and elevated price. But these were the, the fine, upstanding citizens of, uh, of, of Oklahoma. Well, that's exactly what we have here. The fine, upstanding, wealthy, white citizens of Western New York are lining up. They're lining up to make sure that they can have a stake and a say in what happens with Seneca Gaming going forward. I mean, it's, it's incredible that we're still here. But make no mistake, we are still here. All right, hey, I want to shift gears just a little bit. I got to say, I'm coming to New York this weekend. I'm going to be in New York on Sunday. I'm going to uh, co-host and co-moderate um, a discussion in, um, involving the season two premiere of uh, Native America. Now, this is a series that ran on PBS, and uh, they had one season. Uh, it's, only, it's a four-episode season that they, they've already had one season, and, and I watched it, and I have some concerns about it, but in general, they, they, they try to do a representation of, you know, of, of who we are and who we were and that kind of thing. Um, the season two is going to be more about contemporary issues. My concern is that they're going to you know, promote our success you know, and gauge that success on how on certain levels of assimilation, but we have we yet to see. But I'm going to be a, a co-host and co-moderator of of an event that's going to show um, I think episode one of season two, um, and it's uh, it, it's happening Sunday at six o'clock. It's in Manhattan. You'll have to look at my Facebook group page. I got the event posted, and uh, anybody who uh, who asks, they can they can find more information on it. Um, the the folks from Hallucination. Uh, and that's the the band previously known, or the musicians previously known as a tribe called Red. They are featured in, uh, I think, in the first episode, and they're going to be a part of the discussion as well as one of the developers of the of the series. So, I don't make it to New York often, but I will be in New York on Sunday. I may go watch Killers of the Flower Moon <laughs> while I'm in New York. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that uh, how that works out. But I wanted to mention that I'm doing that, and and again, my my thanks to uh, Melissa Oaks for inviting me and uh, and having me join them for this uh, for this discussion. Um, you know, I think a part of what this season is intended to do is to break the stereotypes, and of course, you know, I've been working on that. That's part of you know what my fight over the mascot issue has been is to is to eradicate the stereotyping of native people for the amusement and entertainment of non-native people. You know, and to that end, I gotta I gotta once again mention. I've got to really do a shame on the media kind of thing. You know, when I look at over the, the, the last several years that I've been involved in that battle, when I think about how much time the media has given the, the few Native voices they can find that try to advocate for Native mascots, I mean, this is, it's kind of like the, the, you know, how the media was giving equal time to the climate change deniers. You know, it didn't matter that they were in the, in such an extreme minority. It didn't matter that they were being funded by the oil industry. We see the same thing happening in this mascot debate. They're going to find pick and choose and 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 find people who are claimed to be native, may or may not be, but claimed to be native that support schools using mascots. And and some of these groups have been funded by the Washington football team and you know and uh booster clubs of the, of the University of Illinois and other major um, entities that, that were involved in, 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 this, in this debate, in this battle. Schools who are, who are trying to fight and dig in on, uh, on whether they have to change their mascots. Even in New York, where, where I played such a major part in getting a statewide ban. 
they they look for some of these people. And you know, and look, I don't even want to call them an organization because they are such a few people that they don't even really constitute um, even a, a fair percentage of native people. But the fact that media will give them a platform to you know, to, again, to advocate for the, the mascot issue. And what's happened is, what we've seen is, time and time again, the, the, those opponents, those ones we fight over this mascot issue, claim that it's all the liberal, elite, woke, uh, critical race theory, you know, uh, Democrats that are pushing this. That it's all white folks that are pushing for this change. And when we say, no, we're Native people, we're pushing for this change, they'll say, oh, no, but we have these guys. And, they, and they'll find a handful of these, of these sellouts and these frauds who try to represent and pass themselves off as the, as the voice of Native people. And, you know, and I got to say it again, shame on the media. And I realize that some of this, this is some of the same media that, you know, <laughs> that lines themselves up with Trump and others. But it's, but it's not just the right wing media. I think the media in general loves to try to make these, I don't know, they try to sensationalize the debate. And and within Native territories, and I'm not saying there are some Native people who are okay with Native mascots. I mean, there are some. But by and large, every nation, every organization, every psychological association, child development experts, every, every, everybody who has a real stake in this debate and, and information associated with this debate, they've all weighed in and they've all condemned the practice. So this is what we got. I mean, uh, and, and so when a, when a few people are elevated as some sort of group protecting, protecting the sanctity of Native mascots, and they claim to be Native themselves, you know, shame on you uh, in the media that, that are giving this guy, these guys airtime. It's, it's really deplorable. So I, I had to mention that. You know what? Uh, and we're going to go to some calls here uh, in the, you know, right after uh, take a break in the bottom of the hour, and and I, I had to revisit last week. I, I had a, a caller who was really angry with me. I think he told me to go someplace. Um, but um, I feel strongly that what's happening in uh, in Palestine with the taking of uh, the lands of Palestinians by Israel. And, and I don't mean just this week. And I don't mean last week. I mean for a long time. Um, I can only identify with the Palestinians in, in, this, in this conflict. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm, you know, that I'm praising the attack by Hamas that, that kick-started this, this latest conflict. Uh, but as a native person, there comes a time that we we simply can't take anymore, and 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 I think if you look throughout our history, you're going to probably find examples of native people who who lashed out because of the crimes that were being committed against them, the lands that were taken, the what's happened to their children and their and their their families and their homes, and their their you know their ability to survive. So yeah, I'm I'm sure there's examples, and 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 that's what. The United States did. They tried to paint us as these terrorists, as these savages that were wreaking havoc. When, when Abraham Lincoln signs the execution order for 38 Dakota to be hung by the neck for resisting 
the, the taking of their lands and pushing back against the settlers. And I'm not talking about Michael Landon and, you know, Little House on the Prairie. I mean, aggressive people who were killing Native people. And when Native people fought back, we were the ones who were cast as the terrorists. And you know what they said? They said there was raping that took place. They said that we had killed women and children. Sound familiar? And, and they, they literally sentenced over 300 Dakota to death. And Lincoln thought it would look bad. So he whittled the number down to 38, 39, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, the, and the, his first thing is, well, just send me all of the ones who have allegedly um, uh, raped women or, or killed children. And that list didn't, they, they couldn't really <laughs> create that list. That's what they were pro, uh, you know, charged with. So as I look at some of this stuff, and then I think about the Sullivan campaign, which is when George Washington told his General Sullivan, do not accept any pleas for peace when you go into the Cayuga and Seneca territories. He, they need to know the terror of their chastisement. So accept no pleas for peace. And you need to destroy their lives and their livelihoods. He didn't just say, kill them. He said, make them have intergenerational trauma with the chastisement that they shall receive. So I make no apologies for my concern over the Palestinian people or any innocent people. But I'll tell you, if you've moved to Israel or if you've grown up in Israel and you're a part of, uh, uh, of taking more Palestinian lands into these expanded territories and, and, and against the UN resolutions and everything else, I don't know how innocent you are. And it's a shame that you're bringing your children and your wives into harm's way when, when you're doing this stuff. And I don't condemn Jewish people or the faith any more than I condemn any other organized religion. Which maybe I condemn them all. I don't know. I guess, if, like I said last week, if you kill in the name of your religion, either you suck or your religion sucks. And, you know, and, and I'm not the one making that judgment. But I'm just saying, if you're killing in the name of your God and your faith, then I, I have an issue. That doesn't mean that everybody who practices that faith or who believes that is willing to kill for it. And I know plenty of people who are Christians, including Native people. I don't know. And I even know a few Native people who, have, who, be, who um, follow Islam and a few that follow Judaism. You know, I've got, I've got friends who are part Jewish and part Native. It's, it happens, folks. So... I don't condemn people who have these, these faiths tied to their ethnicity. But if you're killing over it, I do. So I want to uh, assert that one more time. Um, look, I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. Uh, we, you are listening to us on WBAI in New York City. Uh, I appreciate those of you who support the show, and I hope that you will continue to support the show. But more than anything else, and, and, and as I listen to the programs and... and Look, we're always constantly trying to press you, the listening audience, to fund WBAI. But I got to tell you, one of the problems is we need just need more listeners. So again, I, I, I want to press those of you listening to this program to spread the word. Let others know what we do here. Let them know about this show. Let them know that there's a native voice, the likes of which you've never heard before, who 
He isn't afraid to cross over a couple of lines, perhaps, that somehow seem taboo. I don't know. But please spread the word. Let them know that there is a native voice on WBAI. And WBAI has had a history of providing platforms for native voices. So I, I appreciate that. And as a result of being on WBAI, I'm also on WPFW in Washington, D.C., two of the major markets on the, you know, in the United States and major markets that are within the halls of power of the United States. So I appreciate that, uh, but we need your help. We need your help not only to fund the station, but we need your help to spread the word and help us expand our listenership. So um, the number to call to be a part of the program is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Um, Reggie, if I forget to repeat that number along the way, I had a few people last week say, what's the number? What's the number? And, 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 I've, and I got to tell you, even though I stream on Facebook Live and I try to follow comments, it's hard. I can't, I can't necessarily walk and chew gum at the same time, I guess. I can't follow social media and do the show at the same <laughs> that's, time. That's, that's okay. I got you. I yeah, got you. Right, you know, right, you so. know that. That's all good. Now, Reggie, <laughs> he can do two things at once. Um, and oftentimes, he's had to do probably three or four things at once. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a different yeah, skill set than I do. So, <laughs> so, anyway. Well, the good news is I didn't go to hell since last week. So, let's see where, <laughs> where well, we Well, let me, let, me, let me set up the calls and you keep talking. I'll let you know when the calls are. All right. Ready. Again, the, uh, the number is 212-209-2877. Uh, that's the number to call to be a part of... Uh, of the show. And, and look, again, I'm not trying to a ask you to keep your topics or your, or your questions narrow. You want to talk about mascot issues? Let's do it. You want to talk about, you want to talk about Israel and Palestine? We can do that. I'm not an expert, but uh, I'll offer my, my thoughts if that's what you really want to go. But if you want to talk about the film, and I hope the film does generate much conversation. I hope the film does generate the needed conversation for us to address the racism that Native people have experienced. Because that's it. that's just it. It's almost like there doesn't seem to be a connection that Native people have experienced racism in the United States. It's like you look at what Native people have experienced and the way it gets told is, well, it was just, you know, it was a clash of cultures. It was inevitable. You know, this is just what happens when you have a primitive people and a superior people sharing the land. Yeah, that's literally what was what's been said, right? So... So it's like, no, this isn't racism, even though it clearly is racism if you're viewing us as inferior. But this is, there's like this mental block. I mean, and, and I, that's why I tie it to the, to the mascot issue. I say, look, you would never use black people for a mascot because it would not be acceptable. And you know you, there'd be hell to pay if you even tried it. But we can do it with the Native people because, well, Native people are, are different and we're honoring them. Yeah, so so that's what we experienced. So, so again, if you want to call and be a part of the conversation, it's 212-209-2877. That's the number to call to, to talk to me um, and, you know, give me your thoughts. You can you can express your opinions or you can challenge mine if you'd like. Or perhaps, you know, perhaps it's not a challenge. Maybe you want to, you know, expand, um, have me expand a thought that, that, that you're having. So uh, anybody on the line okay, yet there, so yeah, uh, We got two callers ready. All right, we'll, we'll start with there. We'll start there. Caller, you're up first. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, John, it's Russ up in White Plains. And I, I hope that whack job Charlie from Manhasset calls because it's always exciting when he calls. But I have a couple of questions. I want to know how do you distinguish 
eradicating and erasing from erasing Native American presence. Because I think Native American place names, not just mascots, represent the historical position that they've had in the formation of this country. And black people certainly don't have to worry about being erased. And I want to make a comment, you know, the reason that DiCaprio and Scorsese make movies and you don't, they're artists, they see nuance and reality. Not everything is black and white. That's why you're an activist. And I understand that the colonial terrorists, Sam Adams, Crispus Attucks, Paul Revere, they all fought and died to preserve slavery and genocide. That's what our terrorists do. The last thing I want to ask you, why would you condemn the death cult on both sides over there in the Mideast when, when you believe in over-identification and group consciousness? That's the real problem. Thanks, John. I'm not quite sure I understood the last question. Um, if you're still on the line, maybe you could elaborate. All right, we might have lost. I think you. Okay. I think he left. I, I, I didn't quite look. I, I think the idea of, of killing um, because you believe in um, uh, a religion or an ideology is uh, is wrong. So I condemn it uh, no matter who's doing it. And so if you're Christians doing it to indigenous people in the United States under the doctrine of Christian discovery, I condemn that. If you're um, if if you are insisting on a Jewish state. And let's be clear, a Jewish state is a theocracy by definition. The very thing that the United States condemns when it's an Islamic state. So, I mean, it, so if you're Muslim or Jewish or Christian and you're killing people because you think that you're somehow the righteous ones, I, you know, I have a problem with that. So, yeah, I, you know, I, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know how that would make me, you know, uh, be conflicted over my own identity. I'm not condemning anybody for identifying themselves as Jewish or Christian or, uh, you know, or uh, Muslim. I, I, I have no problem with that. But, you know, if you have to follow that up by killing somebody, then, yeah, then, then I have a problem with that. Um, eradication and erasure. Let me, look, na Native mascots are erasure. Why? Because they, they utilize and insist on stereotypes and they cast Native people our images only as objects of the past. I mean, nobody uses a, a contemporary Native person. I mean, they they don't even go far enough, you know, uh, you know, to to go to uh, to a Jim Thorpe or a Billy Mills. No, they they're talking about 18th century um, depictions of Native people. So that's what is being taught at schools that use Native mascots. That we are just relics of the past. That is erasure. Stereotypes are erasure because they ignore. The, those nuances. They ignore the real identity identity of Native people. In fact, many of these schools, they'll call themselves the Indians or the warriors or the chiefs and not have a clue what Native people they're even representing with their mascot and, because they don't care. So I don't think eliminating Native mascots is erasure. And we're, and we're not, and, and again, I got to point this out. We aren't talking about place names. We aren't talking about getting rid of Massapequa. We're not talking about getting rid of Montauk. We're not talking about getting rid of Schenectady, you know, or Kenna Jahari. We're not talking about getting rid of the names of places. The difference between place names and mascots is there's an identity theft that comes with mascots because these students, especially when they when after they leave school, will maintain that that identity is theirs, that they are Indians because they went to school called the Indians, that they are warriors because they went to a school that was called the Warriors. Or that they're savages or red raiders or, or red skins. Yes, the R word. 
they will insist that that's who they are, that they, they emulate this image that they created, which is inaccurate as far, as far as to who we are, and they take that identity, and then they literally condemn us or ignore us as we're saying, yeah, that's not really appropriate. And again, when I talk about the analogy between whether a black person or black people would be used as mascots, um, and again, analogize it against the backdrop where native people are being used, here's the one thing that I gotta make it real clear. It's not just that you wouldn't be able to come up with a, a name or a, or a logo for black people. Black folks would never accept a whole school of white people claiming black identity simply because, because their mascot was, was some sort of black figure. I mean, it would, it would be totally unacceptable. And so when we say it, you're going to ignore us and you're going to say, oh, yeah, that's just a white liberal elite that are doing this. This is just, you know, those focus groups that are doing No, it isn't. We finally got the attention of enough people to get a statewide ban. We did this. I played a major role on that. And I did it because we have been making the statements over and over and over again for decades. Not, not in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Yeah, we got some movement there. Before, the, you know, before social justice became part of the culture wars, we did. We got some movement. That's when the Washington football team dropped its name. That's when the Cleveland baseball team you know, started uh, the process of dropping their name. So yeah, those calls for social justice did impact this debate. But we've been condemning this thing for decades, 50, 50 plus years. So anyway, uh, I, hope, uh, I hope I cleared up at least most of the questions. Uh, let's see if we got another caller. Uh, caller, uh, if you're on the line, uh, you're up next. Uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Yes, go ahead. Calling. Yeah. Uh, is it true that the, uh, the Constitution was uh, plagiarized from the Native people, the Iroquois uh, Indians? Well, not exactly plagiarized. And, and look, even in this, um, this series on PBS, this uh, Native America, they do go down that path a little bit. And, you know, and look, I remember seeing a, a piece that was done that showed the Hiawantha belt and said this is the original draft of the U.S. Constitution. And there was a joint resolution of Congress acknowledging the contributions that the Haudenosaunee had made towards the formation of the U.S. Constitution. But, look, there's gaping holes in what we considered um, governance uh, and true representation through um, clans, clan mothers and chiefs, and, and, and again, these are English words to describe you know, some of our structures, but we didn't have, there were certain things like we used the three sides of the longhouse, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, passing resolutions and that kind of stuff. So the idea of having three different, you know, parts of, uh, of a governing structure, yeah, we had, we had some of that, but, but the idea that, you know, the, the, the executive and judicial um, and legislative branches, we, we, we didn't have that kinds of separations of powers and that kind of stuff. We also felt strongly about women having um, an equal say in how governing uh, took place. It wasn't a chief system. It was a clan system where the women played a major role. In fact, we were a matrilineal uh, system that where your clan was determined by who your mother was. So the role of women in our culture and in, even in our governing systems it's nice that people will attribute us as having, you know, this democracy that was modeled by the United States. But 
if they had modeled their system a little bit more accurately, um, I think uh, everybody would be doing better today than, than they are. We wouldn't have, I mean, the chaos that exists in American politics right now is absurd. I mean, they can't even get a, a Speaker of the House uh, selected. You've got, you know, you can have a president win uh, an election without getting the majority of the votes. I mean, there, I mean the, what the United States has is anything but a functioning true democracy. And, um, and even though it's supposed to be a democratic republic where it's the Constitution that establishes rights that cannot be infringed upon, that's not the way things get interpreted. And so, now I, I think it's, I don't necessarily concur with this notion that the United States modeled its Constitution after, uh, after the Haudenosaunee. They would have been better served if they had. But uh, I think we made suggestions and we talked about with certain things that we did, principles that we did believe in, we believed that when you sat in a position of governing, that you were a servant of the people. You weren't the Lord, you weren't the master, you weren't the authority, you weren't the leader. You were a servant. And, you know, I think the United States still uses language like public service, even though when you win an election, it seems to be more like winning in the lottery lately than, uh, than anything else. So, but I appreciate the question. And thanks, oh. you know, and I think this is, Part of, you know, even as I watch some of these series and these, these documentaries, I think sometimes they get over, um, uh, I, I oversimplified in that way. All right. Do, uh, Reg, we got any more callers online? We have three more callers. All right. I'm going to give the number one more time, too, just to, uh, to make sure. Uh, what, let me see. I don't have the number for me again. 212-209-2877. There we go. 212-209-2877. That's the number to call. Mm -hmm. You want to have a conversation. All right, uh, caller, you're up next. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, is it me? Is it my turn? Yes, it is your turn. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thank you for having such an excellent program every time you're on the air. Um, so I just want to um, thank you and say hi to Reggie and John. Um, um, your, your programs are always um, very educational and... Um, um, I wish you got more time so you could take more calls and, you know, speak more. But um, I just I just really wanted to say that um, I've been looking at all these um, pictures of uh, children being bombed on and murdered. And I'm Jewish and I do not believe in the state of Israel. And um, I stand for Palestine always, um, even even, you know, just just on general principle, because. You know, you talk about stealing the land. There are so many examples of that happening um, to Puerto Rico by the United States. Um, there's uh, Cuba that's blockading Cuba. The United States is blockading Cuba. And the United States and Israel are both guilty for murdering Palestinians. And um, I think that it's really important. I've attended three tremendous demonstrations since um, this happened. And um, what I'm really, and I got, and I went and got sounds from them. So um, I'm going to send you the sound that I got, and you can decide whether you're going to air it or not. Okay. But I think that um, whoever's listening at this time in this moment, um, they should, they should, um, we should, we need to get more live sound from demonstrations that are happening, um, because. One of the major things that BAI is missing is that live sound that we used to have back in the day. And I know you both know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. So <laughs> I just wanted to say that. And um, Free Free Palestine, thank you. Bye. 
Well, I appreciate that. You know, and I, and I couldn't help but when I heard Joe Biden, you know, warn the other nations of the of the region uh, to not take advantage of the conflict, and I'm thinking, who is taking advantage of the uh, the Hamas attack more than Israel? I mean, they are fulfilling their most deep seated goals in terms of eradicating not just Hamas but Palestinians and Palestinian land. There's nobody taking advantage of this conflict more than Israel. And, and, and again, as a native person, and I know what happened to our children. I know, I mean, like George Washington basically was starving our people. He was denying our food. They burnt our crops. They destroyed, they, they, they tried to destroy not only the years of stored food that we had, because we, we had these mountains of corn that we had stored that to get us through any bad rough spots. All of that was stolen or destroyed. Our fields were all de destroyed. I mean, this was the plan of the of George Washington. So, you know, and when I think about what Native children have experienced at the hands of, of again, theology, Christianity, you know, I, I've condemned the the sainthood of Hunapera Serra. He was he was a guy who was responsible for the deaths of children. Ch there was like an eighty percent mortality rate for any children that he ever came into contact with. The, there was a fifty percent mortality rate during much of the terms of the uh, of the residential schools, which we still to this day have not had any e even uh, beginning an accounting of the lives that were lost on the United States. On the on the Canadian side, I think the number is over six thousand of of. Um, uh, burial sites or graves that they've they've located with ground penetrating radar, and that's only a handful of schools that have been checked. Mm. So, mm. I mean, yeah, when I when I think about what Native children have experienced, and and now I look at what's happening in Palestine, and and you know, and and the violence. I mean, how does a two state solution come out of what's currently happening? And and of course, Israel never had any plans to have a two uh, two state solution. So even as the United States. Throws that word that that phrase out there. We know that it's meaningless. So, you know, I, I appreciate the call and I, I appreciate the sentiment. Um, and again, I I have to say it. I appreciate having the time slot here. I appreciate having an opportunity. And yeah, would I love to have two hours? I used to have two hours. <laughs> would I love to have two hours? Uh, yeah, I, I would do. A, I'd do a full hour of calls if, if I could. If I could. So, all right, let me go to another caller. I know we're quickly running out of time. So, caller, you're up next. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello, John. Yes. Hey, John. How are you? Yeah, you uh, got to turn your radio down. down. You, you got to turn your radio oh, down. I'm in. Oh, geez, I'm in a cafe. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. We'll try. We'll try. Go All ahead. Right. Let me rattle it off. Uh, I haven't called you in a long time, and um, uh, I love your passion in in these topics. Uh, the movie, you know, there's a term. You said you can't write this stuff, and and they didn't. It's a true story based, you know, the premise is. But I, yeah. I totally agree with you about Hollywood. It's meant to influence and do all kinds of things, marketing and all that stuff. Um, about the Palestinians, uh, there was a Latin saying that people should know when they're defeated. And what I mean by that is, is that at this point, I think they need to get their people out of there to be safe. I don't think they're getting anything. They're not going to get anything. And it's not an open-air prison. It's an open-air sacrifice, and it's very occultish, and they keep it going. Um, now, the, Isra the Israelis, you think I trust them, let's say 10, 20, 50 years from now, if they got rid of the Palestinians? They're, they're going to expand their border. Sure. They'll probably go and get a colony somewhere. I don't trust them as far as you can throw them. 
the government, you know. Yeah, no, I understand uh, what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. Now about the um, uh, about the mascots. What came to mind when you mentioned that? I said, well, where are they? Where where did they use uh, black uh, rappers as mascots? In my opinion, it was in the music industry. Uh, there were songs that didn't need rap, but because it was popular, they brought out the mascot to represent rap, and it was uh, uh, created by uh, African Americans. And in my opinion, I said, this is just like, you know, just throw this person out here. Um, and it, and uh, that's just, you know, something I saw, you know, I think I looked into. It's kind of like a mascot, in, in a way. I'm, I, I'm, um, I'm, not follow, I'm not fully following that one, though, so... Well, a mascot is to represent something uh, or give the percentage. Uh, so, are, are you suggesting that that rap artists, um, you know, basically, you know, marketing? No, the it, people who produce the music oh, okay. use them like a mascot. Yes. No, yeah, I, I use. I, I agree. Some music I'm... songs didn't need. Right. See, I think you see what I'm talking about. Some songs didn't need a rapper in the song, but then they incorporated that, you know, musically in. And I'm like, well, this is just to throw this in. It would be like like if they took songs in the 50s and 60s, and then somewhere along the end, uh, they threw some other kind of music in there just to throw it in. You know, it just wouldn't make sense. It, to me, it's not congruent. It yeah. just doesn't... Um, I'm not a subscriber to Facebook, so if you could mention where your talk's going to be, that would be great. Um, I, thank you very much. I don't have thank it right in front much. of me. Um, something about the Leonard Nimoy um, Symphony Space or something like that. It's up on 95th Street, I, I think. Oh, the Symphony Space. Yeah, that's Symphony on, Space. Uh, okay, that's um, on Broadway uh, be, on the corner of 95th Street. Okay, there's the Upper Symphony West Side. Space. Yep, so that's, Symphony that's Space, 6 o'clock. Right. On Sunday, and that's uh, that's where we're going to be. And and again, the guys from Hallucination are going to be there, and the producers of uh, of Native America, and uh, we're going and I'm going to moderate some of the discussion. Uh, I'm gonna I don't know who's going to moderate me, but I guess I'll have to do some self moderation. <laughs> so, look, Reggie, as always, I want to thank you for uh, for assisting and helping me with the with the calls. Uh, I don't think the audio quality was as great today. I, I got a little feedback coming back. Hopefully, the, it sounds good on uh, on on the radio, but. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate what you do and uh, and the, the assistance you give me. Uh, of course, when I'm covering these topics, um, no doubt. And uh, we'll continue to do it. I think I'm off next week, but uh, I'll be back after that. So uh, you know, uh, look for me on Facebook. I I do a show even when I'm preempted, so you can look for me there. This is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>